Well, thank you very much. You are listening to WETF, South Bend, Indiana, the Jazz Station, and this is the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark, and welcome back to the program, or welcome if you haven't heard us before. We tend to focus on some elements of the uh, of the great uh, jazz era and the great jazz recording era as well, and we try to do some interesting things that perhaps some other radio shows are not doing. So today we're going to be featuring the music of the legendary uh, New Orleans pianist, composer, arranger, Jelly Roll Morton, and his musical activities only begin to sum up his life. He was a colorful character in every way. He did leave sort of an autobiography that was derived from extensive uh, recordings and interviews that he did at the Library of Congress in about 1938 or so, and he uh, was always one to blow his own horn and to... uh, raise his own um, contributions to the history of jazz, although most of what he said he could certainly back up. He was born in 1890 in New Orleans. He uh, started playing in the Storyville District, the red light district of New Orleans, playing piano. Uh, Probably by the time he was in his early to mid-teens, his family was not in favor of that, and so he changed his name. He was born Ferdinand Joseph Lamoth and uh, became uh, Jelly Roll Morton, uh, the term jelly roll, of course, had some some uh, kind of dirty connotations to it, but he uh, maintained that name for the rest of his life. And uh, he toured around the United States, especially the, the West and the Southwest, for many years before landing in Chicago in the late 1910s. Uh, he had apparently appeared there in about 1910, 1911 or so, and as well in New York, because some of the pianists of the next generation recall hearing him at that point. Uh, he uh, lived in Chicago in the 1920s, from about 1920 or so, uh, into the very late 20s, 28, 29, when he moved to New York. He was primarily a uh, uh, song composer at that point. He did lead bands. He put bands together for short tours and for um, residencies in different ballrooms and things like that, and also for recording dates. He was pretty widely recorded during the 1920s. He had uh, gotten an in with the Melrose Brothers, who were uh, publishers of music, uh, stock arrangements, songs, so forth, and also songwriters themselves to a certain degree. And uh, he started doing some arrangements for them, but he also started uh, making recordings that would publicize Melrose Brothers songs, especially those that were composed by Jelly Roll Morton. And his uh, series of recordings... uh, done by uh, the band that he called the Red Hot Peppers for RCA Victor, beginning in 1926, considered one of the great glories of the early jazz recording period. He used mainly New Orleans musicians, although not exclusively so, but he recorded many of his own numbers that he had previously recorded as piano solos or even piano rolls and orchestrated them for a small jazz band. And they were enormously influential at the time and then going forward as well. And he continued that recording series even after he went to New York in the late 1920s. He used some different musicians. He started using bigger bands. Uh, The quality of those recordings tended to fall off a little bit, and uh, his own playing and composition style was considered kind of out of date by about 1930. So through most of the 30s, he scuffled as a a solo piano player. He put bands together occasionally. He did record occasionally. Uh, He ran a club in Washington, D.C. for a little while. As I said, he made those uh, Library of Congress recordings, which were very important documents telling us about the early history of New Orleans from the turn of the century and how music was being played back then. Uh, And then ultimately he moved to Los Angeles in 1940 and uh, died about a year later of a variety of ailments and didn't record while he was out there, unfortunately. 
as I said, he was looked on as kind of a legend, uh, and he certainly advanced his own legend in many ways. Uh, even during his lifetime, during the 30s, he, he put off a lot of musicians by his braggadocio and his uh, willingness to claim credit for all kinds of things. Although, as I said, in most cases, he had the goods to back it up. So he... Uh, was able to uh, say with some justification that he was in at the beginning of jazz, even if he didn't invent it himself. By the late 1920s, as I said, he was well known for leading his own Red Hot Peppers on record, and he had a pretty busy career in Chicago and then briefly in New York as a music publisher and so forth, but he was occasionally hired to make recording dates uh, as a sideman, and we're going to be listening to those today. We started out with two tracks that he recorded in 1928 in New York, shortly after he went to New York, as a matter of fact. Uh, he was playing piano for a band led by a cornet player named Johnny Dunn. He is an African-American cornet player whose career went back to the very beginnings of jazz recorded history. He was born in 1897, perhaps in Memphis. Uh, details about his life are a little sketchy. He may have attended Fisk University for a while, and he probably started playing with W.C. Handy's band in the middle 1910s. He was in Memphis by that point, definitely. Um, and uh, he came to be known as a very adept jazz player at the time. Of course, jazz wasn't popularly known until after the recordings of the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1917. But by the time Dunn ended up in New York in about 1920 or so, he was considered to be one of the uh, foremost African-American practitioners of jazz. And he played a cornet style that was called the freak style in New Orleans anyway. And we think of people like King Oliver and Mutt Carey, who used a lot of mutes they used tin cans and toilet plungers and whatever else they might to change the sound of their instrument and to make it more expressive, trumpets and cornets. And Johnny Dunn was doing the same thing. He was uh, not as compelling a blues player as some of those New Orleans players. He played in what came to be known as the Eastern style, which relied more on mutes and tonal manipulation and not so much on real blues feeling or melodic uh, exposition or anything like that. And he was pretty frequently recorded in the 1920s, both under his own name, Johnny Dunn's Original Jazz Hounds was his band, and also backing people like uh, Edith Wilson, the great blues singer. He was also a good theatrical player, and he toured in the Plantation Review and other Harlem reviews uh, throughout the 20s. He ended up in Europe several times. Uh, he passed away, actually, in Europe in 1937 of tuberculosis, um, but uh, not, after, not until after he was considered one of the first really influential African-American jazz artists on record. And of course, this was three, two, three, four years in some cases before some of the other great players that we think of today, uh, having been given the opportunity to record, like King Oliver, Louis Armstrong, even Jelly Roll Morton. So by 1928, Dunn was considered a little past his peak in terms of influence, but he got this recording date for Columbia, and he reassembled or assembled some of his original band, uh, including uh, John Mitchell on banjo and guitar. John Mitchell was an interesting guy. He uh, ended up going to Europe, as Dunn did, uh, and staying in Europe uh, a little too long, as it turned out, because he was captured by the Nazis right at the beginning of World War II and put in a prison camp where he stayed for several years before coming back to America. He ended up playing with Jimmy Lunsford after that, so he had quite a, quite a varied career. Harry Hull is the tuba player. He, too, had been with Dunn in the early days and toured with the Plantation Review. We don't know who the drummer is. It might be Mort Perry, who was one of Dunn's associates. On reeds, clarinet, and alto sax, we have Garvin Bushell, who did record uh, occasionally with Dunn. 
Uh, he also uh, was known as a, a early jazz improviser. He had a tremendously long career that lasted into the 1980s until he was about 90 years old. He too left a very interesting jazz autobiography. We also have Herb Fleming on trombone, who was an early uh, trombone player uh, from this style. He had played, I believe, with James Reese Europe's band. Uh, he was active in New York in the early 1920s, recording with Johnny Dunn and a number of others. And he can be heard playing on some of the um, uh, jobs from the, the Club Metropole in New York into the 1960s. So he had also a very long career. And, of course, Jelly Roll Morton was added to this group. And uh, if we believe the record labels and the sounds, Jelly Roll probably composed two of the tunes that, uh, two of the four tunes that were recorded that day. So we started out with a takeoff on Dunn's biggest hit, The Bugle Call Blues, which itself was taken off of a couple of things and came to morph into what we think of today as the Bugle Call Rag. And this tune was called, on this recording anyway, Sergeant Dunn's Bugle Call Blues. And then following that, we heard a tune credited to Morton called the Buffalo Blues. And all of these feature uh, very fine playing by all of the front line and the rhythm section as well, as well as some very uh, interesting and characteristic touches by Morton on piano and arrangements. So those are the two tunes we began with. We're going to end our show with the other two tunes from that session, which was recorded in March, March 13th of 1928. So we're going to go to a very different session now. This is a, kind of a, a legendary, maybe for the wrong reason, session that Morton participated in in 1929. Actually, there are two sessions from December of 1929 and June of 1930, and they're both led by and featuring the... Uh, vaudeville novelty clarinet player Wilton Crawley. I played some of Crawley's uh, solo recordings or recordings with just a rhythm section on a podcast that I called Hot Clarinets of New York. Uh, if you'd like to hear my podcast, it's the Jazz Focus on Anchor.fm and uh, Spotify and a number of other platforms as well. So this particular band was... Uh, not a regular band. It was derived from uh, several bands that were in New York at the time, African-American bands that were touring or had residencies, and Wilton Crawley hired some very fine jazz musicians to accompany him. He himself was actually a pretty remarkable clarinet player. The things that he could do uh, suggest that he had a pretty good technique and maybe even had some formal training at some point, but he emphasized the laughing, cackling, you know, novelty aspects that he would have used in his stage show. He was known for uh, laying on his back and playing clarinet and wriggling like a snake across the stage, and that was a big showstopper, and apparently he did that during one of these recording sessions, which completely broke the band up. So this first session comes from December of 1929. We're going to hear three tunes. You Ought to See My Gal, Keep Your Business to Yourself, and She's Got What I Need. And those are all by Wilton Crawley, and they feature, as far as we can tell, Freddie Jenkins on trumpet. He was with the Ellington Band at the time, and his bandmate Johnny Hodges is also in this group on alto sax, and he gets a couple of solos as well. Jelly Roll Morton is probably the piano player, although Louis Russell may have been on for a little bit of it, but it sounds like Morton in the solo uh, aspects. We don't know who the banjo player was. It could have been Will Johnson, who was with the Louis Russell Band at the time, because his uh, section mate, Pops Foster, uh, is playing bass here. And on drums, it could possibly be Sonny Greer from the Duke Ellington Band. So we can tell that uh, Crawley must have taken a, a, a walk over to the Cotton Club at some point and engaged some of the Ellington musicians. So we're going to see, hear those three tunes featuring those soloists. Then we're going to hear two tunes from the next session, from June of 1930. This features members of the Louis Russell Band uh, a little more consistently. We have Red Allen on trumpet, 
Charlie Holmes on alto sax. He was actually Johnny Hodge's brother-in-law, and they played in a very similar style. Morton on piano, Pops Foster on bass. Bruce Johnson is on washboard. He was known uh, for playing with the Washboard Rhythm Kings, uh, who made a long series of recordings for Victor and some other companies uh, in the late 1920s into the early 30s. They were out of the Philadelphia area, and Bruce Johnson apparently was their leader, playing washboard. Also from that group uh, was a man a little bit more familiar, Teddy Bunn on guitar, and he was pretty well known in New York and uh, worked steadily through the 30s, recording with people like Duke Ellington, Sidney Bichette, Shea, uh, Tommy Ladnier, different people like that. Very good blues guitarist, but considerably more sophisticated than the usual blues guitarist. And the two tunes we're going to hear from that session are the New Crawley Blues and She Saves Her Sweetest Smiles for Me. So those are our five tunes coming up. You Ought to See My Gal, Keep Your Business to Yourself, She's Got What I Need, New Crawley Blues, and She Saves Her Sweetest Smiles for Me.
So that's uh, an example of Wilton Crawley and the vaudeville approach to jazz in the 1920s. Um, his clarinet playing is a little hard to take sometimes, but uh, he certainly did what he attempted to do very well. Um, and I imagine he was pretty interesting to watch on stage. And he certainly had the sense to hire some good musicians around him. So we started out with You Ought to See My Gal, Keep Your Business to Yourself, and She's Got What I Need, featuring, um, as I said, Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone and probably Freddie Jenkins on trumpet. He was a very technical trumpet player who was used for a lot of the flashy showpieces that Ellington uh, recorded uh, in the 19, late 1920s in the Cotton Club period. Then we also had uh, Pops Foster on bass, probably Sonny Greer on drums, definitely Jelly Roll Morton on piano. The solos had to be uh, Morton. Uh, and also that ending of You Ought to See My Gal, which kind of tied together some of the novelty chattery effects, uh, was pure Morton, those octave uh, ascending phrases uh, that just ended the whole piece. And uh, there's a trombone in there, too, from in, at times, but we don't know who that was. He didn't really get any solos. He's more featured on the tune that I did not include from that session, which is called the Futuristic Blues. Then we finished up with two sides from the June 1930 session. Those earlier ones were December 2nd of 1929. And we heard the new Crawley Blues, and she saves her sweetest smiles for me, which gives us a nice guitar solo by uh, Teddy Bunn, uh, who, with Bruce Johnson on Washboard, as I told you, were uh, members of the Washboard Rhythm Kings. In fact, I believe that was... Um, Actually, it was the new Crawley Blues that was issued as Wilton Crawley with the Washboard Rhythm Kings. We also heard some very good Red Allen on trumpet and some Charlie Holmes on alto sax. Um, and, of course, uh, Jelly Roll Morton on piano. Pops Foster is on bass, but we heard him on tuba uh, on the new Crawley Blues and uh, holding some long notes. Foster had been playing tuba occasionally with the Louis Russell Band in its early days, and he had played some tuba in New Orleans as well doing parades, but he very quickly switched to string bass and was considered one of the premier jazz string bassists in African-American bands in the late 1920s playing with Louis Russell's band. The other was Wellman Bro playing with the Duke Ellington Band. So those are our Wilton Crawley Jelly Roll Morton sides. So we're going to go uh, now a little bit uh, different direction. We're going to hear a blues performance uh, on the next one by Edmonia Henderson. Edmonia Henderson was one of the classic blues singers, one of the many uh, African-American women who were singing blues on record uh, during the 1920s in a craze that was initiated by Mamie Smith in 1920. Edmonia Henderson was not terribly well-known. She stayed in Chicago, I believe, all her performing life. She recorded these... Uh, or this tune that we're going to hear right now, in July of 1926, I believe it was her last issued recording. It was for the Vocalion label, and uh, featured Morton on piano, definitely he, because uh, one of the tunes that we're not going to listen to was his tune, The Dead Man Blues. We're going to listen to a tune called The Georgia Grind, which was a blues tune that Louis Armstrong, among others, had recorded, or was recording at the same time. And this uh, little group features a cornet and a tenor sax. Um... Some discography suggests that it was King Oliver playing cornet and Barney Bagard playing tenor sax. They were both playing in King Oliver's uh, Dixie Syncopators at the time. I believe they were playing at the Sunset Cafe uh, in Chicago, and it could be them. They're not featured extensively. Bagard was known primarily as a saxophone player in his Chicago years. He played some clarinet, but he left the clarinet duties to people like Albert Nicholas and Darnell Howard in those bands, uh, and he didn't really start... Uh, being featured on clarinet until he joined Duke Ellington shortly thereafter. So we're going to hear the Georgia Grind. Then we're going to go to uh, a tune that... Uh 
Morton recorded uh, in the early 20s with the New Orleans Rhythm Kings, the London Cafe Blues, and that was a Morton tune. This was the first mixed recording date, as far as we know, for jazz. A white band, but featuring Morton, who was an African-American, although he called himself Creole, and he uh, refused to acknowledge his African-American roots at different times during his life, but um, it was still a pretty important recording session for, for bringing different races together. They couldn't perform in public together, and they couldn't tour together, but they could make records together, and fortunately they did. So that's the London Cafe Blues. Then we're going to hear two tunes that Morton recorded in the mid-30s uh, with Wingy Manone and his orchestra, another New Orleans player, and I'll tell you more about those when we get to that point. So we'll start out with Georgia Grind, followed by the London Cafe Blues. Same old Georgia grind. 
these boys, I got all my dates this morning. Man, I got Bud Freeman, I got little Frank Victor, Artie Shaw, little Kirby. Man, everybody knows little Wiggy. I'm gonna get off for you lightly now. Look out.
So that was a good example of uh, Jelly Roll Morton, the Sideman. We started out with uh, Edmonia Henderson, a uh, blues singer from that period in Chicago. She actually left music not too long after this recording date. She became an evangelist and actually became a minister in Chicago. Uh, but she was here singing the Georgia Grind, which is definitely non-religious or irreligious in its tone. And uh, she was accompanied by Jelly Roll Morton on piano, possibly King Oliver on cornet and Barney Begard on tenor sax. It was a very short tenor sax solo in there that very well could have been Barney Begard. That was from 1926 for the Vocalion label. Then we went to an earlier recording done on July 18th of 1923. The New Orleans Rhythm Kings was a uh, very influential white jazz band in Chicago uh, from about 1922 to 1924 or so. They were uh, initially mostly New Orleans musicians, as the name might suggest, and they played at a place called the Friars Inn, where a lot of the next generation of white players, uh, people like Frank Teschmacher and Muggsy Spanier, Jimmy McPartland, uh, so forth, would go and listen to them or uh, buy their records because they were the first uh, white jazz band in Chicago, I believe, to make recordings, at least the first New Orleans-influenced band. And they were uh, definitely a very good jazz group. They were led by a trumpet player, cornet actually, called Paul Marez, uh, who was from New Orleans. They had a magnificent clarinet player named Leon Rapolo, who later uh, succumbed to mental illness, unfortunately, but did make some fine recordings in the early 20s. George Brunies of the famous Brunies family was on trombone. Uh, on this recording, of course, you had Jelly Roll Morton on piano. Uh, remarkable that... Uh, they would hire a non-white musician to play in the band, at least for recording dates, but uh, his participation was very valid or valuable. This was a two-day recording session which produced uh, about six different tunes, seven different tunes, I guess, and Morton was on four of them, and their regular pianist, a man named Kyle Pierce, was on the other three. Uh, the tune we just heard was called London Blues, or also known as London Cafe Blues. It had been recorded by King Oliver. Uh, and it was also known a little bit later as the Shoeshiner's Drag, which is definitely a Morton tune. And Morton is given credit on some labels for the London Blues, the London Cafe Blues. We also heard Bob Gillette on banjo, uh, Abraham Martin, who was known as Chink Martin, on tuba, and Ben Pollock on drums. Martin was also a New Orleans musician. We got to hear a little bit of uh, Jellery's piano in there at the beginning and then decorating the clarinet solo as time went on. There were also some other reed players uh, who might have been on this recording, although it's kind of hard to tell with the early recording quality. Jack Pettis was on C melody sax, I think we can hear him, and two other musicians, Glenn Scoville and Don Murray, were on clarinets and various saxophones, but I think they played more on the pop numbers, which were probably done from stock arrangements. This tune was definitely a Morton arrangement. Then we went to two different tunes uh, that were part of a Wingy Manone session. Wingy Manone was another New Orleans musician, a white cornet player who had the name Wingy because he lost an arm in a, in a streetcar accident when he was a boy. And he uh, made a long series of recordings for Vocalion and OK and different companies in the 1930s. I should mention that New Orleans Rhythm Kings recording was for the Genet label, by the way. But Wingy Manone uh, would always bring in very fine jazz musicians and played in a pretty consistent New Orleans jazz style. This particular recording session was done in August of 1934, and uh, most of it was, I don't think any of it was released initially. Uh, the General Morton sides were issued on an LP many years later. There were two pianists involved. Morton did the two tunes that we heard, Never Had No Lovin', and I'm Alone Without You. The other two tunes were, uh, or had Teddy Wilson on piano, but they were never released.
or at least not uh, until the LP era. We have Wingy Minone on trumpet, Dickie Wells, the African-American trombone player who was playing with Fletcher Henderson at the time, or had just left Fletcher Henderson, I should say, on trombone. Artie Shaw, before he would put together his great band, uh, was on clarinet. Bud Freeman, the great tenor saxophone player from Chicago, had recorded with Wingy at least once before. He's on tenor. Morton on piano. Frank Victor was a, I believe he was a New Orleans player. He played guitar. He was a, uh, an associate of Manon's for quite a while. He even got a little solo on I'm Alone Without You. John Kirby, the great bass player who had not yet formed his great sextet from the later part of the 30s. He was still playing, uh, or had uh, played a couple of years earlier with the Fletcher Henderson Band. He's on bass. And Kaiser Marshall is on drums. Kaiser Marshall had played drums in the 1920s with the Fletcher Henderson Band and jobbed around in all sorts of different bands in the 1930s and 40s. We even heard Wingy introduce some of the musicians on Never Had No Lovin'. But interestingly, he did not introduce Kaiser Marshall, Dickie Wells, or Jelly Roll Morton. I have to wonder if it was because of racial complications this was another mixed band, although he did introduce John Kirby. At least he said Kirby, he didn't say his first name. Kind of interesting who he, who he, who he picked and who he left out on that one. So Never Had No Lovin' was a kind of a slow bluesy number. I'm Alone Without You was a pop number, and we heard some Morton piano on the second one. So we have time to do two more tunes for you, and we're going to do the balance of that Johnny Dunn session that we started out with. We're going to hear uh, You Need Some Lovin', and Ham and Eggs. You Need Some Lovin' was attuned by the black composer Perry Bradford, and Ham and Eggs is credited to Jelly Roll Morton. Not sure what exactly he did with that tune, or if he composed it just for the recording date or what. This is not considered one of Morton's greater tunes, but there's some excellent playing by Johnny Dunn on cornet, Herb Fleming on trombone, Garvin Bushell on clarinet and alto, Morton on piano, John Mitchell on banjo, Harry Hull on bass, or tuba rather, and possibly Mort Perry on drums. So that's what we're going to hear. You need some lovin' and ham and eggs, and before we go, I will tell you we are the Jazz Focus here on WETF, South Bend, Indiana, the Jazz Station. My name is John Clark. Hope you've enjoyed this program and getting to know some relatively uh, little-known Jelly Roll Morton recordings from the 1920s and into the 1930s. So thank you very much, and hope you join us again uh, very soon. Thank you.